Welcome to new podcast Rewind, brought to you by the Handshake Agency. We're going to be looking back at important releases and key moments in Australian music history, as well as taking the odd detour into international waters, and getting key players from the time to give us their version or recollection of events. My name's Steve Bell. I've been writing for the music and its Brisbane predecessor Time Off for right on 20 years. I was also editor at Time Off for eight or nine of those. So I've got a couple of thousand interviews under my belt, including many during my years on air at 4ZZZ, freelancing for other publications or at dues like music industry conferences. And these days I'm also co-owner of Brisbane Record Shop, Sonic Sherpa and indie label Cool and Bus Sound. So thanks for joining us. We're going to start by going back 25 years to 1995 and the release of an album that would not just put a young band on the global map but also set up the fascinating career which followed. When Aussie rock band Silverchair pulled up stumps on their nearly two-decade career back in 2011, they left us as one of the most successful and decorated acts ever to emanate from Down Under. They'd won more arias than any other artist in history, 21 victories from 49 nominations, as well as six APRA awards. All five of their studio albums debuted at number one on the Australian album charts. An incredible feat, really, especially in their early days when albums shifted massive units still. And they scored three number one singles over the journey as well. They changed and evolved dramatically during their time together, developing significantly in both songwriting and musicianship. But what's really interesting about the timing of them ending that amazing run when they did is that rather than being grizzled rock veterans, the three band members were all just into their early 30s, which hardly seems possible. But that's because their story started way back in the mid-90s when the three members of Silverchair, singer and guitarist Daniel Johns, drummer Ben Gillies and bassist Chris Jonu, were still in their mid-teens and going to high school in Newcastle where they'd all grown up together. The three mates started out together learning their craft in their bedrooms as a band called Innocent Criminals, playing a mixture of covers and increasingly assured originals, unknown to anybody except their families and schoolmates. They'd been playing lunchtime concerts at high school for a couple of years by then already, thanks to a sympathetic headmaster, as well as a handful of local gig pigs. What we'll be examining over the next three episodes is the incredible tale of how these teenage music fans turned into Silverchair, willing themselves into one of the biggest bands in the world in the period of just an incredible 18 months, helped on their voyage by a diverse array of music industry professionals who had their backs and their best interests in mind. The tale of Silverchair's debut album, Frog Stomp, which came out just over 25 years ago in early 1995, can't be told without the story of their signing to Sony Offshoot Murmur in 94 and the release of the album's lead single Tomorrow that same year, which became one of the most recognisable tunes in Ozrock history and spent six weeks at the top of the Aussie singles chart while the band was still just 14 and 15 years old. With this in mind throughout the podcast, we'll be speaking with Silverchair drummer Ben Gillies, the original Sony A&R guy who signed them and their eventual manager, John Watson, the head of Murmur, John O'Donnell, and his second-in-command, Susan Robertson, as well as Frogstomp producer Kevin Caveman Shirley and Robert Hamling, the man who helped pluck them from obscurity and went on to make many of their early film clips. We should note at this point we'd been scheduled to meet everyone in person, but due to the coronavirus pandemic, we were forced to do the interviews over the phone, so please excuse the slightly differing audio levels. Nonetheless, it's an awesome narrative, one where the good guys win, and fittingly, we'll kick it off talking to Ben about his memories of those opening steps in the fascinating Silver Chair story. How do you feel about the album after all this time? Man, I still reckon 
Frog Stomp is probably our most honest record. Um, like all the songs and all the recording and every, all the songs are written, um, you know, before any fame or any success, you know, and all the recordings were done before the band took off. And so it's just, I think it's it's really hard to, like for anything in life, right? You know, once you do it for the first time, then it's, it's done. You can't do anything for the first time again. So... Yeah, to me, it's it's the one that's the least kind of um, untouched by, you know, external forces or other having other hands kind of get involved. So, yeah, for that reason, I think it's the most honest album. And you know, I guess no no other there's no other um, preconceptions of what we have to what we had to do or if it needed to be successful or. Um, so yeah, man, I, I think it's a, that's probably why it's 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 an album that's really stuck with people and just stood the, the, the test of time. And yeah, and I mean, I really like it. I haven't I haven't listened to it in a while, but maybe after chatting with you today, I'll go and give it a spin. Yeah, I've, I've been listening to it a lot, obviously, as I've been you know interviewing people for this. It, it stands up really well, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's funny on on social media, like you get a lot of people reaching out saying, you know, how, how important the, the album was to them and how it uh, shaped their their use or you know particular experiences. They that they have that um, association. So you know, to to kind of obviously for us, when it's hard to have that perspective when you're part of the process, but you know, it's also really nice to to think about how we may have affected people's lives or been a big part of their life, you know, without even knowing it. Do, do you remember vividly the your mindset sort of in the innocent criminal days before, you know, this all took off? Were, were you guys ambitious or were you just doing it for fun mainly? Oh, it was a bit of both. I think we were really passionate about music and we are really excited about it. Um, I, I think it was like we discovered a secret kind of society that, um, you know, only a handful of people around the planet had tapped into and we were just lucky enough to have discovered it. Um, I mean, like, as in music and and playing in bands and playing music with your friends. And so we were pretty, we were pretty excited by, you know, the prospect of, I don't know, just trying to do something with it. And, yeah, so I think we, we, we definitely had the love and the passion and we did it because we were doing it for the right reasons. Um, but we also definitely had that ambition. I remember I remember going to Dan's house quite a few times and we, the two of us would sit around and talk about how we're going to be the biggest band in the world. And and that, you know, and I think at, at you know, 14, 12, 13, 14 years old, we talked about how good we're going to be when we turn 18. It was like, can you imagine how good we're going to be? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a bit of, bit of a combo. The band had started off with Daniel and Ben playing as a two-piece, and in time-honoured fashion, instead of finding a bass player and hoping he wasn't a tool, they roped in one of their best mates since they were really young, Chris, and taught him how to play the four-string. Well, Chris was pretty amazing in how he learnt so quickly and became first competent and soon excellent on his instrument. In the early days, it was Ben and Daniel coming up with the bulk of the original material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we were definitely the the driving force 
um, in the early, you know, to, to start the band. I guess uh, the way the band started was basically the two of us, you know, jamming together and I play drums, he play guitar, we were both, like, we were best mates and um, and that's when we brought Chris into the band and, yeah, but he and I were the ones that were interested in the in the songwriting and, and, and being creative and... Um, but it's funny, I, I, can, I even remember how tomorrow kind of germinated. We were we were the three of us were jamming um, and we used to have these epic jam sessions for like four and five hours. <laughs> we'd just sit and we'd never stop, we'd just play and play and play. And we're not, not anything in particular in those songs or anything, we'd just be kind of playing random music but whatever we whatever came out, we were just feeding off each other. And uh, I'll never forget, even to this day, I remember... Um, the three of us just kind of launched into the chorus of Tomorrow. We just started playing it. And um, Dan, I don't know if he sang the lyrics as they were, but he definitely sang the melody, the, the You Wait Till Tomorrow melody. And that was kind of it. We didn't really think too much about it. Um, and it wasn't until maybe a day later. I remember I was sitting in my dad's office uh, my dad's a plumber, or was a plumber, and he had this little kind of like old brown desk with one of those kind of curved um, covers that you kind of roll up. Yeah, yeah. And I remember sitting at sitting at that desk, and we had like an old like Telstra phone with the cord. And I called Dan. And I said, "Hey, man, you know that song that we play, um, or that moment that we had when we were jamming the other day? I said, we should turn it into a song." And I think maybe like the next day. He, um, he came, I don't know if it was on the way to school or after school or, or something, but anyway, the two of us sat in my childhood bedroom and with a couple of acoustic guitars and we just nodded out the rest of it, like the the, uh, the verses and um, the, the other bits and pieces of the song and just kind of pinned it together. And it was, it was also, it was like a, the first iteration was like a, a six-minute, Stadium epic because at the time we were listening to so much seventies rock like Led Zeppelin and, and Black Sabbath and and those kind of bands. So they you know they'd had these massive epic tracks that would go for like seven, eight, and ten minutes. So the original the original version was huge. Um, anyway, and that's how that's how that kind of that's how that kind of came about. But that's how a lot of those songs on the on the record came about. They were just you know, we didn't have, we weren't worrying about record companies or, you know, having singles or anything like that. We were just writing music and, and playing music that we were excited about. Did did Tomorrow seem special to you at the time? Do you remember or did it just seem like another one of the songs you were sort of rolling out? Um, yeah, I think there was definitely something special about it. We... I mean, it's one of those things where you can't, it's hard to have that perspective, but to us, it was just really fun to play. We loved playing it. Um, you know, not in a million years would you, do you imagine that it's going to be like a massive kind of global hit. It's, um, although, like what I said earlier, you know, we, we were definitely ambitious and we wanted to be successful and we wanted to be a big band. But, you know, when you're, 12 and 13 years old, like it seems like a long shot. So for it to turn around and happen reasonably quickly 
um, it's pretty unreal. But, you know, I guess that's our reality. That's kind of what we experienced. And but for that particular song, like, I don't know, it just it felt good. And it, and it, you know, it felt like a good thing. And then once we started showing to a few people, like, um, that's when, I guess it's that feedback, right? Once you start getting the feedback, because you, if you don't have a perspective, you know, once you're getting the feedback, once you start getting the feedback from other people, that's when you have an idea, you know, or maybe we're onto something here. Um, actually, I remember when we won the Nomad competition at SBS, which is basically what we, which is what launched our career. Um, and then we did, we as part of the, the winning that competition, we won a film clip and a day's recording at Triple J. Um, and we recorded tomorrow the edited version, I might add, um, not the, the 70s epic. Um, <laughs> when we recorded that, we, we recorded it with Phil McKellar, but I remember getting back to Newcastle and I was still obviously living with my parents at that time. I think we were like 14. Um, I went and showed my sister and she's a big she's a big music fan. And that was probably a moment for me when I showed my sister that she just, you know when people just can't help but smile at something or they just something just gives them a big grin. Um because they're excited about it and there's something special about it. But for me, that was the moment when I, was, I you know, went into my sister's room and she had like an old kind of 90s ghetto blast. I think I had like a, a cassette tape of it and I played it for her and she just she just had that kind of magical smile that you think, oh, cool, there's something really cool and special or she's just excited or whatever it was she was feeling. That was the moment for me. I was like, oh, cool, this, is, this definitely does have something special about it. Did your lives change a lot when that song took off? Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, that's there's still ripple effects from that track to this day <laughs> in all of our lives, I think. You know, I, I think if it wasn't if it wasn't for that song, like, I, I, I think um, all of our lives would have been really different. Um, you know, it's, uh, would we have been successful or would we have all... Um, you know, stayed in a band together or what, what would we have done? Who the hell knows? But, you know, thankfully, because of that song, it launched us into a a, a career that was, um, you know, a lot of fun and really gratifying and, um, you know, and, and I'm, personally, I'm, I mean, I'm really thankful for that. So just to backtrack a little, Innocent Criminals, as they were still then known, had written Tomorrow as a seven-minute epic and recorded a demo of it at Newcastle's Platinum Rock Studios, along with three other early originals, one of which, Acid Rain, would end up re-recorded as a B-side on the Tomorrow EP, while the other two, Pure Massacre and Cicada, eventually surfaced on Frog Stomp. Next, they submitted this Tomorrow demo to the Pick Me competition run by Nomad, the SBS music program produced by Tracy Hutchison. The prize was that the winning act got to record the winning song at Triple J Studios and have a clip for the resulting track made by respected UK filmmaker Robert Hambling, who was also the chief judge for the competition. So as a pick-me judge, it was Robert who ended up with Innocent Criminals tape in his hands, which according to Craig Matheson's 1996 book Hi-Fi Days, arrived alongside their 25-word or less entry criteria, which was written in green text or on yellow cardboard and said simply, We're not rap or hip-hop, we're rock and we love to play.
With that, Robert became one of the first people outside the band's inner sanctum to ever hear this soon-to-be global hit, and he would also play, as it turns out, quite an important role in its adaptation into a radio-friendly rock banger. You're obviously more, you know, renowned for your film work. How did you get to be involved in the uh, Pick Me competition judging songs? Um, well, I had met, I think I'd met Tracy through Pam Swain, who did a lot of stuff with the ABC music and stuff like that. And I'd done some music videos, um, my background's feature films in England, like came over and did some music videos. And then when they they decided to do the Pick Me competition and the prize was going to be a video. That was the prize for, for, for winning Pick Me would be that they'd do a video and they'd air it on the show. So Tracy asked me to, uh, to could I help run the show and do the video at the end? And I said, yeah, fine, that's great. And I think prior to that I'd done um, some uh, – I'd interviewed Henry Rollins and Primus and people like that for the show for Nomad. And um, so – uh, and Amanda Duthie had been with Nomad right from the beginning before Tracy was even there. So Amanda Duthie was the sort of line producer and she'd seen the whole show through. It was a very interesting show, really, because it was quite ahead of its time. It was multicultural and fairly eclectic and, you know, ignored the charts, as it were. So it was pretty good. Um, yeah, so they asked me to to come in and help run it, which I did. And then um, Tracy had called it Pick Me and they people had to say why they what they'd like to be picked and send in music. And in came the cassettes, you know, hundreds of them, and I would take them all home and listen to them and um, attempt to listen to all the tapes all the way through because we were trying to find the best song. And, you know, some it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the first one on the, on the tape, if you know what I mean. Um, so I, uh, um, yeah, sat for a few weeks and just listened to um, tapes and read their uh, you know, and, and um, Tracy and Amanda would sort them out in the first place and put them into the boxes. So I guess if some people had sent something in and hadn't applied, hadn't fulfilled the requirements of writing a piece about why they wanted to be picked or something, they may have been put in another pile. I can't remember, but we, I think we listened to, I listened to, well, I, I listened to pretty much everything, I think, I think. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of how I got involved with it. Now that seems like a pretty exhausting process. Do you remember stumbling upon Tomorrow? Yeah, very much. Oh, yeah, very much so. Because I, I mean, I'd listened to a lot of things, and there was an amazing number of sort of, um, uh, not even really sort of. Uh, I was expecting, uh, uh, I don't know, I was expecting just more diverse things. There was quite a lot of um, straight sort of pub rock um, stuff, which was great, brilliantly, brilliantly played, and, and, and great, but just had nothing, you know, no, nothing exciting about it, or nothing. There was. Um, there were three acts that I thought were really good, but uh, which were um, uh, the Von Trapp family singers from Melbourne, and they were great. And Fishhead was a guy that did cut-ups of of um, and electronic music with cut-ups from bits out of Star Trek and things like that. Who who was really good. Um, and then there were the Innocent Criminals, which was you know three kids playing these songs, and the tape had you know, three or four songs on it. And literally, actually, was I just played tomorrow, and I just thought, wow, that's really great. I, you know, that's fantastic. Um, and sort of, the other two were, you know, really interesting and good, but they didn't have, you know, they did, didn't have the best song, if you know what I mean. They they had lots of other interesting aspects to them, but they didn't have the best song. Um, and uh, 
so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I played it. I played it quite because it was seven minutes long, as I said before. It was, and, I, and I played it quite a lot, um, and was sort of thinking, oh, maybe I should be picking, you know, electronic stuff and, and this and that. But the bottom line was, and I, it's the sort of thing that, that I stuck with throughout the whole picking process was that I really did think it was the best song. But at that point, it was seven minutes long, so um, that was a bit of an issue. But then I um, asked a friend of mine, uh, Nick Lorne, who's a producer. And who you know who done Midnight Oil and and um, and Nick Cave and oh you know list as long as your arm and come out of the Roundhouse in London and um, when you met him in London you him in London and you him here um, he edited it down to a, a a single length you know the three and a half whatever it was minutes and arranged it and um, and it sounded great to me at that point I thought well this thing's I think this thing's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was just really memorable, and I, you know, had lines in it that, that, you know, just matter how strange lyrics are, if they stay in your brain, and the sort of, you know, there was plenty of those. And so after that single, I then went back and listened to a bunch of other tapes to sort of clear my head of it, and came back, and it still I thought was streets ahead. And in the meantime, Nick had really grown to like it, and we were very sort of, um, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, we're just very keen on it. Um, so uh, yeah, we had um, we had a bit of a, a bit of a, a tussle with the show, but that was more because of their sort of charter really on uh, multiculturalism and things, which I which I you know I agree with, and I think that made the show great. But as I said, um, it was it was the best song. So you know, by all means, pick something else um, uh, for all the other reasons. That's great, but but this is the best song. Uh, so after a fair bit of um, persuading and the fact that Nick uh, was going to be able to probably record the the track, that would have added some, you know, some magic fairy dust to it. Um, but unfortunately, he got flu on that day and Phil McKellar did it. But Phil did an amazing job. And that was a, an interesting day in the studio because these three young kids came in and um, just played this song. And then when Daniel sang... Um, there was a few sort of mouths, you know, jaws dropped open. I think it was just me and Phil there at that time. Actually, in fact, it was. It was just Phil and I there on that day recording. But and the band, and I think the mums were there early, earlier on. And the mums had been amazing. I mean, the mums really, you know, they were, they were sort of the driving force in a sense because the boys were too young to know where this could go or how to deal with it. But um, the mums were were amazing. They were great um, in at the beginning in, in terms of sort of helping them, protecting them and, and doing all those things. Um, but, yeah, when Daniel sang, uh, that was a bit of a like, a, you know, okay, so game on, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, but I will say actually prior to this, they'd won, I think they'd won, you know, they'd won a couple of competitions. And I think if I'm right in saying that the, the headmaster of their school had been incredibly good. He, you know, made, let them do concerts and even organised PAs or something. I mean, he'd really... You know, the headmaster actually, you know, full props to this guy. He'd really seen that these kids had something and maybe, you know, develop it like in the, you know, in the proper sense of educational, you know, it's no point getting a guy to run and, you know, play rugby if he's a chemist, you know. They sort of um, – and then a, a guy in um, – the original demo was done by a guy in Newcastle who did, a, you know, a very good job. And, and so they, they'd sort of – they got a little – you know, they got a bit of a thing going. It wasn't like, we'd, you know – uh, yeah, yeah, they'd already got a bit of a thing going. I think cream does float to the top. 
when you when you got Nick to do that four minute cut, yeah, did you then submit that edited version? Was that the one yes. that then became? Yes. Which in fact, and then they re-recorded it. I think for the album, didn't they? They they did it. The album. Mm-hmm. I think the album version is different. But yes. Yeah, so so uh, when I took the tapes back to uh, to Tracy and Amanda, I said, "This is fantastic, but it's way too long and stuff." So, and they said, "Yeah, what can we do? What can we do? How can we do it long?" So I then went off and and got it edited down by Nick on my own accord, and then when they realised Nick had done it, they then all would Nick be involved in it? and Nick. When we said Nick said yes, but he couldn't do it. But yes, that so that edit he did for me on a quarter inch, which I've got here somewhere. Um, we, um, actually, I've got the original demo tape somewhere. You know, you, you know it's a podcast. It's no use to you. <laughs> <laughs> you can say, and here I am holding it up to the mic. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yes. So that, so that yes, so that edited version was was the one. That um uh, that yeah was submitted and picked and uh, that's the version that um, Phil recorded. Because most people, when they're judging things, don't go and edit the uh, one of the ones they like. Well, I knew when I <laughs> I think well, it's no, awesome. Don't get me wrong, but it's sort of no, but bit... no, well, no, and that's true. But I I did it partly because I was trying to convince um, the powers to be at SBS that it was it was the one because I, I you know. It, it was one of those songs that it it, it it just lost momentum, you know. It was a um, yeah, just lost momentum, uh, and then picked it up again at the end. So you, you did feel like, wow, there's a whole three minutes you don't need. Um, but I knew if I'd had to go at editing, that's not my skill set, and I would have just, you know, I would have just done something that, well, not when when you one of your best friend when you when, when your best friend is Nick Lawn and you go, oh, I think I'll do the edit. You've got to be a dickhead, <laughs> you know. You've got to be stupid. Um, so yeah, so Nick, um, you know, I mean, in many in many ways, the tomorrow. The song is is the bands and it, you know, but actually making it a pop song rather than the seven minute song is is uh, in physical terms down to Nick and I suppose me saying Nick, you, can you cut this down to a single length thing? But um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't known somebody. I suppose I would have done it myself, and you'd never know. You wouldn't. We wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I read I read someone else. I read somewhere else that um, there was some pressure for some dance tracks to win. And another person who showed it to to make sure you weren't crazy was Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil. Yeah. Yeah, I played it to Rob and played it to um, uh, a friend at the time at EMI Records. It was mainly to see if I could get interest, but it was also to make sure that Nick, I didn't think that Nick and I had gone bonkers, you know, that we were just, you know, I mean, I, I genuinely wanted the, the, the best thing to win. There was some... Um, yeah, there was. Uh, I mean, the Von Trapp family were. Uh, I mean, I thought Fishhead with the Fishhead was the, the the second most interesting thing, but the Von Trapp family from Melbourne, uh, I think, might have been Tracy's favourite pick. I'm not sure. It seems un- incredibly unfortunate that Nomad didn't get a chance to uh, revel in the oh, fact I, that they unearthed a, a global oh. smash number one single. <laughs> Oh, I mean, for Tracy, it was and Amanda. That would it was heartbreaking, you know. I mean, it was heartbreaking because yeah, a lot of work and energy to get a program up, to get a profile, and it was starting to get some traction, and people were starting to realise, 
that there was this good show on SBS that wasn't just playing what everyone else is playing, but was really playing some interesting stuff. And Tracy and Amanda both had a very strong um, radar on on alternative underground sort of, you know, um, Amanda's boyfriend at the time was a bass player with Crow. And, um, you know, if it wasn't Miles Davis or Nick Cave, really it wasn't worth listening to. <laughs> and uh, you know the school I'm talking about. You know, the mm-hmm. <laughs> ruthlessly uncompromising attitude, uh, which is often vastly incorrect, but does give you a focus, um, and and that's a great thing. And I mean, Nomad wasn't that wasn't anywhere near that ruthless, but um, you know, it was great. And uh, so yes, just just when they got would have had this really big piece of exposure, it didn't exist anymore literally the following week you know so don't tune in next time mm, so sad <laughs> oh, it's, oh it's it's horrible isn't it that really really is crazy for the sake of accuracy we should point out while acknowledging that 25 years is a very long time to remember stuff that the band robert was referring to them was actually called von, von trap family crisis who according to a 96 piece in rolling stone had actually submitted for the compo an acapella tune about tuna fish which is a Kind of mind-boggling, but anyway. While all this was happening, strange things were foot over at Sony Music Australia. John Watson had cut his teeth playing in Townsville indie pop band The Spliffs, who I once saw supporting Hootie Gurus at Expo 88 and liked enough to buy their mini-album once I got back to Melbourne where I lived. Watson had also worked in record shops and written for rock magazines like Rolling Stone before taking up a role doing A&R at Sony. A&R standing for artist and repertoire. They're the people at a record label and trusted with finding, signing and moulding new talent. When Nirvana's Nevermind cut a sway through the music industry in the early 90s, the major labels realised there was a potential goldmine happening right under their eyes in the rich Aussie underground scene. And John was tapped by his bosses to start an indie imprint with a more alternative focus, soon roping in one of his old journo comrades to help run the ship. I started out sort of working in record stores and doing indie journalism and uh, managing bands and then got a job doing A&R at Sony in 1991. At the time, um, every Australian record company was trying to find their rat cat or their Nirvana, so they were employing people from the other side of the tracks. And um, I got a job on that basis and they, they wanted to start an indie label, but it was a fairly poorly thought through uh, proposition. So we had a couple of failed attempts at getting that label off the ground. And by 1994, it became clear that there was a, a different way of approaching it where Sony would sort of bend a lot of its rules and um, put a dedicated staff on. Um, and Dennis, who was running Sony, said, well, you know, would you like to run it? I'm like, well, no, because I'm now doing international marketing as well, but I know somebody who'd be great. And so I reached out to um, my good friend John O'Donnell, who I knew from my journalism days, and uh, John agreed to come to Sony and start a brand new label called Murmur. Um, we're both big REM fans. It seemed like a, a perfect name, that being, of course, the first <laughs> REM album. Um, and uh, John, when he first started at Sony, didn't have a desk. So he was sharing my office. And on his second day working at Sony, um, we got a phone call from a guy who um, worked for Sony who'd just been in at Triple J and told us that everybody at Triple J was buzzing about this band that had recorded a song in the Triple J studios over the weekend, an unsigned band, um, and they had just won a demo competition that SBS had run, a TV show on SBS called Nomad, 
and the prize was a day's studio time at, the, at Triple J. And so this band had been down, they'd recorded this song tomorrow and Triple J were talking about possibly adding it. Do you recall what excited you first about Silverchair when you heard that song and then perhaps saw them that first time? The song was undeniable from the first time that we heard it. Um, not long afterwards, we saw the video that Robert Hambling had, had created for the band, which was also part of their prize. Um, and I think that there was something pure about it, something um, undeniably real and authentic um, in, you know, this was clearly just kids loving the sound it makes when you play guitars. You know, when you're that age, when you're 14 years old, Ben and Chris were 14, Daniel was 15, um, when you're that age, you're not making music to be on the cover of Rolling Stone or, you know, even to meet girls. You're doing it just because you like how it sounds when you play music together. So there was a real um, purity of intent around the, the around that song, around the video that Robert had made for it. And then when John and I travelled up and saw them play that first gig in the bistro out the back of Jules Tavern to six people, um, they played three sets. And most of the songs that were on Frog Stomp um, were actually in their set that night or their sets that night, along with a whole bunch of covers and, and some other songs that didn't end up making it onto Frog Stomp. Um, so we just couldn't believe that all of that material um, was there. Like it just, John was literally in his first couple of weeks by now of, of working in a record company, and he was like, "How easy is this?" <laughs> um, I'd been doing it for years, and was like, "This does not happen every day. We have to make sure that somehow or other we get to sign this band." Yeah, and at the time, uh, the previous year, the band had come runners up, or they got the encouragement award or something in the youth rock competition, which was sort of a, a high school battle of the bands. Um, and the, their main focus, the main reason they kept rehearsing was they really wanted to win that in 1994. And uh, I remember going along to that, and they didn't actually win their heat. Um, I think they did go on to win the final. They didn't win their heat. Whoever was judging it clearly was had cloth ears. <laughs> um, but uh, and they were really worried because there were all these people that were there, um, you know, industry people by this point were trying to sign them. And uh, they were just, uh, you know, mortified, thinking, "Oh, this is this is all that matters." Was winning youth rock, like it doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. They're a bigger fish to fry. The strong relationship between the two Johns, Watson and O'Donnell, continues to this day. Right now, they both co-manage Oz Rock Titans Cold Chisel together, but their stint together signing Silverchair to Murmur began in a fairly hectic manner. John O'Donnell recalls them stumbling upon innocent criminals pretty much straight away after he joined. Yeah, literally. Within the first month, um, and they'd won the Nomad contest on SBS, and um, a, a sales guy at Sony had brought it to John and my attention, and we picked up the phone pretty much straight like that day. Um, I think we'd seen the video of the clip that Nomad made for with Robert um, for tomorrow. Um, so we saw that we saw it on a VHS, um, <laughs> which is again, a funny little relic, but, um, we saw that and I jumped on the phone that day to Julie Johns, Daniel's mum and, um, and had a conversation with her. Um, the conversation with her was kind of interesting and a little bit weird because she said that they'd already been in contact with, um, Mushroom Records, and they said that they were pretty um, happy with what they'd heard from Mushroom and that they were probably going to sign with Mushroom. 
and um, that was all in day one. Um, and I just said, look, um, when's the band playing next? And the band was playing that Friday night up at Jules Tavern in Jules Town. And stop me if you've heard all of this before from John. But, um, yeah, so I, uh, John and I jumped in a car and drove up to Jules Town um, and saw them play at the Jules Tavern. And totally, there was probably eight people in the room <laughs> and um, they totally blew our minds. Like, they just fried our synapses. It was incredible. Um you know, it was naive and it was young and clumsy in some respects, but it was absolutely fantastic. They had Pure Massacre, they had Israel's Son, they had Tomorrow. These were all songs that um, were pretty much as you hear them on Frogstomp, and they had them already and were playing them. And we obviously wanted them to play more and more of these original songs and less and less of the covers they were doing. That night they did Cold Gin by Kiss. They did um, they did Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf. Um, they did um, Rockin' in the Free World from Memory. They did a Pearl Jam song. Um, so they did all of the songs that were either in their father's collections or they were starting to hear from the grunge bands that, had emerged, um, but, um, you know, peppered through their set was probably 10 originals that just, you know, absolutely blew our minds. That must have been so surreal. How did you pitch to the band? What was your key selling points? Do you remember? Um, we, We very quickly went into overdrive, but even on that night, um, it was the fathers who were there, because um, all of the families had other, you know, they they were 14 and 15-year-olds or 15 and 16-year-olds, um, but they were very young and they all had siblings. So the mothers were at home that night and that's how it tended to be. It was either a mother's night or a father's night. But this night it was a father's night um, and we met the fathers, got on well with them, um, just chatting before the band played. Um, the fathers were doubling as roadies for the band. Um, and once they started playing, you know, again, we would just – our jaws were literally on the floor. Um, we befriended them and talked rugby league, which was big for all of the fathers. And I'm a, a rugby league tragic and John's a rugby league fan. Um but I'm a tragic. And so um, that bonded us somewhat. I think the fact that we were also um, young by comparison to others that they started meeting in the music industry, um, that we were young compared to the Mushroom people, which were Gidinski and Warren Costello. Um, And we just kind of, I think, had a younger feel about us. the fact that we were starting Murmur um, was intriguing to the band. But I I think the fact that um, the three guys in the band really liked us and we had the same record collections that they had. Um, We were big 
Pearl Jam fans. We were big Rage Against the Machine fans. We were big Nirvana fans um, and could kind of speak that language and not just in a way to impress them. We could honestly speak that language um, and um, in many ways this was a band that Murmur was put in existence to try and find. They were definitely younger than expected, but it was the kind of thing that Sony had been missing out on um, in their A&R pursuits. And um, I'd been brought in to kind of give it a younger edge and a point of difference to the rest of the Sony roster. Um, And so we quickly um, went into kind of that being our selling point to the band. John Watson also vividly remembers the whirlwind of excitement and competition in the brief window between hearing tomorrow and signing the band to Murmur. I think that Mushroom and ourselves were the only two labels that were seriously in play. A number of others sort of came along later and and kicked the tyres or made overtures, but we were the first to to kind of... um, to, to, to see the band and to meet with the band and as a consequence always had the head start that, that went with that. Um, what was sort of a bit funny about that was that when we first spoke to them, they had two gigs coming up. One was on a Tuesday night and one was on a Friday night. The Friday night was the one at Jules Tavern that we went to. And on the Tuesday night prior to it, um, we had a, the, the big international boss of Sony was in town. There was a big gala dinner for him, so we had to attend that. We couldn't you know, go out to a gig. And so we told them, we're coming up on the Friday, we won't be there on Tuesday. And uh, when we called on the Thursday to get the details for this little pub that they were playing at, um, we were told that, look, Mushroom came to the gig on Tuesday, um, Mr. Gadinsky flew up on Wednesday, we've met with them, um, we like them, you probably shouldn't bother coming, we're signing with Mushroom. And we were like, it's only been two days, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we went up anyway, and... Um, I think that, and from that point onwards, it was quite competitive between ourselves and Mushroom to sign the band. Um, I think the thing that stood us in, in best stead was that John and I was sort of probably a bit younger than um, the, the folks from Mushroom who were making the running, um, and we were able to sort of talk to them about a lot of the bands that you know that they loved, Screaming Trees, Pearl Jam, you know, Alice in Chains, these were all bands that were on Sony. Um, and also... Um, I think this is probably the most important thing. The band had sort of had two batches of material. There was a bunch of songs, sort of the first songs they'd written, really, um, which kind of had more of a, I don't know, a Guns N' Roses influence or something like that, done more meat and potatoes rock and roll. Um, and then there was sort of the newer batch of stuff that was obviously more influenced by what was going on in Seattle at the time. And um, the Mushroom guys all liked the earlier stuff and we liked all the new stuff. And so that, I think... Um, stood us in good stead with the band, not that we knew it at the time, but in hindsight, I can see why they would have been a bit worried that Mushroom liked these songs that they had actually already decided they were going to drop from their set. Silverchair's drummer, well, more accurately at this point, Innocent Criminal's drummer, Ben, also has strong memories of that incredibly important, as it turns out, weeknight gig, which happened before a handful of people in the small suburb of Jules, about 15k from Newcastle. I certainly do, good old Jules Tavern. Well, first of all, we weren't allowed to play in the normal kind of band area. We were we were banished to play in the bistro because of, uh, <laughs> because of our age. And um, I recall 
there was some, I don't know if they were bikies or they were definitely, they, were, they definitely had a feeling that they were bikies, but there was a group of bikies there. Let's just say they were bikies. There was a group <laughs> of bikies. Um, the Johns, um, probably some of our parents hanging around. Um, and we were, the three of us were kind of squeezed onto this, it felt like maybe a, you know, a four by four meter stage, like it was tiny. Like, I think my symbols would have been right next to Dan and Chris's ears, and I'm sure they would have been thankful. Um, and I guess we, we played a combination of like mostly covers and some originals. But I remember the bikies in particular, like, because we played Born to be Wild, they just kept saying, play Born to be Wild. I'm, I'm sure we must have played it two or three times. Um, and, and, you know, another strange, two, two, two memories I had from that was playing... I don't know what the name of the game is. It's like a, it's like you play football on a desk with a twenty cent piece, and you tap it. Then you get to tap it two more times, and then you got to flip it at the end. Um, it's like it's like a school, like it's a school game that you play. We, we Dan and Chris and I, between sets, we play this game with a coin. Um, and what else are I remember? Oh, that's right. I'm pretty sure John O'Donnell tried to bribe us <laughs> with Pearl Jam box sets. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, they were trying to bribe us back then. Did it work? Yeah, well, yeah I, th- I think it definitely was a, you know, it was a factor. <laughs> but uh, you know what? We, so I think we ended up signing with those guys because we just liked who they were. So we, we had, a, we had a, a few opportunities um, of where we could have signed. And actually, all the deals were reasonably similar. So um, we we had the, we had the smarts at 14 to sign with, you know, you're signing with the people rather than the company. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, we, we've, we've had a lot to do with them. So I think, I think we, we must have got something right because we had a lot to do with them. And John Watson obviously ended up managing us. So, um, so yeah. You know, I think we've got something right. Susan Robertson had been working her way up the Sony ladder for a few years, working heavily in international marketing for Aussie Sony acts like Midnight Oil, as well as closely alongside Sony head honcho Dennis Handlin. And upon the formation of Murmur, she was headhunted quickly from within by John O'Donnell to help get the nascent label up and running. We had the office set up, so we, um, to Dennis's credit and everyone at Sony's credit, we were given complete free reign to set up Murma as we saw fit. So we had an office down the road from Sony, and I think we'd just set up the office, and John and John had gone up to Newcastle to see Silverchair, and then it was on. It was on. It was like, you know... I didn't even know if we had an email address then at that time. And I think we did. And I think it was, you know, murmur at aussiemail.com.au, you know, <laughs> in the early days. <laughs> it just seems bizarre now in the, in the early days of the internet. And, yeah, so it was kind of on, you know. We, um, we, we had to quickly bring on a couple more staff as soon as Silverchair started going a bit crazy because we clearly couldn't do it, just the two of us. Um, and then it just got insanely busy um, and it just went ballistic from there. What sort of roles were you primarily doing on a daily basis? Um, initially, I was doing promotions. So John uh, John Watson was doing A&R with John O'Donnell. So John Watson was still working at Sony as head of A&R. 
and um, JOD was basically doing marketing and I was doing promotion. So liaising with Triple J, talking to media, things like that. Um, then as it got busier and busier and busier, John left Sony to manage manage Silverchair, of course, and John O'Donnell basically, um, he took on more of an A&R role, I guess you could say, and then I kind of took on more of the marketing, but was working very, very closely with John and John. It was you know, we, we fortunately we all had the same vision for the band, particularly John and John, and then we just followed that um, followed that plan through. Now, around this time, before the release of the Tomorrow EP on Murmur, the band's name changed from Innocent Criminals to Silverchair. There are numerous myths which have been floating around for years about where the name Silverchair actually came from, something we'll get to the bottom of later in the podcast. But in the meantime, John O'Donnell recalls the impetus for getting the band a new moniker. They were called Innocent Criminals, and as it went on, um, we – this is a matter of eight weeks, maybe ten weeks. Um, so we got into – we'd at least got them to consider us as a contender, and it was a kind of two-horse race between us and um, at, at Murmur through Sony and uh, Mushroom. Um, I remember one meeting in particular – after the guys had played it, um, Youth Rock was it called? Youth Week, Youth Rock. Um, but um, we had lunch with them just out in suburban Sydney, and um, the guys said, "What do you think of our name?" And that was a moment that was kind of really important because both John and I said, "Well, we kind of think your name sucks." Uh, and those were our words, I remember them. And the mothers were most horrified by our response because they loved the name and they thought that the band should stay with the name. And we said, we really think it's a name that suggests that you're young, um, that you're um, naive, and we would suggest changing your name. Um, so we'd opened Pandora's box there. The guys were really pleased that we'd said that. The three guys all already felt that they'd outgrown the name and that the name would kind of um, stay with them and peg them as, um, you know, a teenage band. We said that we thought they should consider changing their name and our whole push to the guys in the band and to the parents was your real band. We need you to survive beyond this early interest you're getting. We need you to be playing with other like-minded bands. And we named those bands, you know, Magic Dirt, Spider Bait, um, Regurgitator, um, UMI. You got to be playing shows with these bands and you've got to be able to show the audience that you're a genuine band. Otherwise, people are going to, you're going to have a big song with Tomorrow and it could be all over. We said we'd rather um, pitch our sights way beyond t- Tomorrow and try and get you to have a first album that is successful, but a second album that means that people aren't perceiving you as washed up at 15 or 16. Um, And so that was our whole approach. On our way back from Jules Tavern, um, 
John, who'd been an A&R guy for Sony, um, as well as doing international marketing for Sony, he started pouring over in his head what he would put together as a proposal to put to the parents. And that next day, which was a Saturday, we sent off a three- or four-page document summarising our thoughts um, and um, putting together a marketing plan that we thought was pretty robust. And that was all of John's um, previous previous A&R experience wrapped up in this document and he knew very smartly, he knew that he had to get that document to them immediately um, because um, things were moving reasonably quickly but we needed to make a strong impression. Um, we learned that the mothers were going to have a big say in this, as were the fathers, but the mothers were probably... Um, the people looking after the management part of the band at that stage and that we needed to make our mark, make our mark with the um, with the parents and the band. And so we got that. I think we faxed it off to them on the Saturday, the day after seeing them at Jules Tavern. Um, and then we just relentlessly phoned, um, met, um, and communicated with them and kind of wore them down. <laughs> Fantastic. You, you went on to work quite closely with the mothers and that, it seems that the parents were really concerned with the, the kids' well-being rather than fame and fortune, which is not something you see all the time. Is that fair? Oh, that's very fair. Um, you know, and, and it, it you cannot separate Frog Stomp from the band's whole career, but if you just look at um, the the parents were determined to get their sons to the age of eighteen um, and make and and allow them to make their own decisions after they turned eighteen, but they were very um, protective of the band, and so keeping them at school, um, they really only toured during school holidays. Um, and that got a little bit looser as time went on, but um, we at Murma had to put a, a tutor on the road with them um, so that they could all be on the road in America but doing school classes in between. And so um, that, that was off in the distance, but the parents were much more concerned with them staying level and, you know, um, keeping their childhood intact while also pursuing this dream that we all have of making it in rock and roll. So, you know, it, it was um, a delicate balance, but one that they determined and, you know, we listened very keenly and we listened very seriously um, to that. And, you know, the fact that we made the Frog Stomp album in the school holidays at the end of the year um, and they toured um, and did the big day out around that time. But then they were back at school come February in, two, in 1995 and then the album was dropped around the Easter holidays, that kind of time, you know, um, just showed. And, you know, all of their overseas touring in those early years was all done in school holidays. Um, going back to Newcastle, coming from working class families, 
Um, and then having Newcastle as their base and staying in the same schools, I think all of that stuff kept them as level-headed as you could while, you know, having amazing experiences like they did. From a punter's perspective, what I remember most about Silverchair reading the rock press and so forth was how they seem to have this strong gang mentality, like a, a one-for-all, an all-for-one, three-musketeers kind of thing. Ben agrees, but looking back, he reckons this is because they were teenage mates living the dream as much as any specific band dynamic. I think just growing up in Newcastle, like, you know, you know what? It's probably like any young teenage boys, like, you know, what do you really have going on in your life? Like, we, we all came from, you know, like, I guess, middle-class families. Like, we weren't, what, they weren't crazy rich, but they, were, they weren't kind of uh, on the breadline either. They were like, you know... We were all really comfortable. We went to school. We went to the beach. Like we, we had pretty simple lives, and we were happy. And um, so, for us, you know, hang, hanging out with your mates and, and being silly and and having fun. I mean, that's I kind of think that's what played into our into the band coming together. You know, because we just loved music, and that kind of brought us together. Um. So, yeah, I think in those early days, and also without having any external kind of influence, you know, there was no record company or managers or anyone kind of saying, this is what we think you should do, this is where we think you should go, this is, you know, there's there's no kind of advisors telling us anything. We're just kind of teenage, we were just teenage boys having a blast, running around and doing what we love. There was no... Um, yeah, there was no preconceptions, and um, so I think we just for that for that first album, that you know, probably those first few few, few tours, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, some a few rat bags from Newcastle that you know could play some decent music, just running around and enjoying the enjoying the, the experience. You know, it wasn't it wasn't kind of till later on to you know there was, there was a lot of external influence coming to the band. The fact that the Silverchair members were so young, still completing high school with no real end in sight yet, didn't just cause the standard logistical hassles like getting them into licensed venues to play, it dictated the overall approach that the two Johns took in taking the band to Australia and then the world. John Watson, who left Sony to manage Silverchair not too long after Frog Stomp's eventual release, explains that as they released the four-track Tomorrow EP into the world, Silverchair's first proper recorded foray, that their emphasis was on the long-term rather than the short-term game, as well as avoiding the fickle nature of the pop industry. Going back to sort of when we first signed them, though, um, when we were first trying to sign them, I remember coming back um, that night from Jules Tavern and laying in bed just being so... My mind just spinning with ideas for sort of how are we going to make sure we sign this band? We can't miss this. This is the one, you know? Um... And getting up the next morning and thinking that because the age was actually, in our minds, almost a negative in the sense that they were a really good band full stop. They weren't a really good band for their age. And so um, in our conversation with the band, they were savvy enough to recognize that there was uh, the potential for someone to portray them as a novelty act. And they really didn't want that. And they also really 
you know, our, our view, John, my view was if they're capable of doing this at 15, imagine what they'll do at 25 if they're just given the chance. So all of our talk from the very first evening was how do we get around this age thing? Um, and I remember the next day, um, being a Saturday, sitting, writing a career plan. I thought what we'll do when we send our offer in is we'll send them a whole kind of marketing plan and a career plan of all the stuff around the deal of how we try and sort of protect them from all of these things. I remember there was, I couldn't find any paper in the apartment. All I had were post-it notes and writing this plan on about 40 different post-it notes, you know, one after another after another, and having to go into the office on the Monday and sort of type it all up. Um, but, you know, that, that that plan that John and I then sort of finessed and, and um, attached to the offer and then kind of became the, the, the document that we actually tried to execute uh, was very much based on not exploiting the age, trying to kind of keep it cool, make people see them live, you know, don't don't sort of let them be kind of um, put into situations where they could be seen as a gimmick or a novelty. Get people to see them play and go, hey, they're a really good band. You know, they've got really good songs. And if they're given time to develop, they're going to turn into something really special. Um, you know, at the time, we thought we could keep a bit of a lid on Tomorrow and the Tomorrow EP. Little did we know. Uh, but we thought by sort of things like pricing it at nine ninety nine, doing four songs that felt a bit more substantial, putting it in a large case, doing it on vinyl. You know, we had a marketing plan that called for selling 6,000 copies of it uh, and ended up doing about a quarter of a million. So um, little did we know, you know, what it was to become. But all of our plans were based on the idea of trying to keep it um, cool, give it time to grow um, and and not exploit the novelty. That extended to who you'd do interviews with, wouldn't it? Like you were refusing things like Dolly and Hey Hey It's Saturday in favour of Rolling Stone and what have you, more integrity? It's probably worth... Um, explaining sort of the, the world that existed at that point in time because it was quite different, I think, from how things are now. You know, you sort of had two worlds. There was the world of mainstream pop music, which involved glossy music videos, it involved variety TV shows like, um, you know, Hey Hat Saturday, Saturday morning video hits shows that played music videos, um, you know, magazines that had pull-out posters of the bands, um, you know, like Smash Hits and Dolly and the columns in the daily newspaper, that was all sort of one side of the tracks. And they had a whole bunch of artists that, you know, that people who consume that media loved those acts. And then there was this other side of the tracks that, you know, read the street press, that read fanzines, that bought their music from independent record stores. They probably heard their music on on Triple J, which was just going national at the time, um, just gone national. Um, You know, they're watching, they may be seeing Rage. Um, And so there was a whole... um, underground of artists and what had happened in the couple of years prior to Silverchair coming along was that that underground had gone above ground in a really really big way internationally it was Nirvana and Pearl Jam domestically it was sort of Ratcat in the first instance who came out of nowhere on an indie label and all of a sudden found themselves as teen pinups and then the Cruel Sea but a lot of what we were doing in the first instance was about trying to ensure Silverchair didn't become Ratcat Ratcat had been this really cool inner city band who, through no fault of their own, just wrote some really catchy songs and found themselves, um, you know, playing to the pop audience that, that they felt no affinity with. And as a consequence, all the, the, the other side of the tracks uh, abandoned them and then the pop audience moved on to something else and they kind of lost their career. So we thought it's one thing to be washed up at 30. Imagine being washed up at 16. So... Um, 
a lot of what we were trying to do was to protect against that. So there was this moment happening, though, where all of these things from left of centre were starting to cross over and the, you know, the mainstream audience was looking more and more at these other places. And Silverchair became really the, um, the catalyst, the breakthrough moment for that kind of music, which had been bubbling probably from the punk era onwards uh, in Australia. It had been bubbling, 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 getting bigger and bigger. There was the occasional act that would kind of cross over, the Hoodoo Gurus, for example, um, that would come out of that scene and eventually move its way across after five or ten years of slogging it out around the pubs. But this was happening quicker and quicker now, and it was reaching a much younger and broader demographic. And Silverchair became the lightning rod for that. So a lot of the bands that followed immediately in their wake, like Powderfinger, like Spiderbait, um, UMI, um, these bands were all, um, to a greater or lesser extent, labels were seeing the commercial opportunity, both here and internationally eventually, um, as a consequence of the walls that, that you know, Silverchair broke down. Um, they were able to have success on their own terms. They didn't go and do Hey Hey It's That Day. They, you know, we wouldn't let them do photo shoots with any of these glossy magazines because we didn't want them to be teen pinups. You know, we wanted to avoid the rat cat thing. Um, and so as a consequence, and that was very much the band's view of things, which is important to, to recognise here too, you know, they might not have been able to explain it in that kind of detail, but they had a strong sense of what was hell and what sucked. That was their kind of binary way of, you know, something that was hell was good, something that sucked, well, it sucked. And they had a pretty good view of what was and wasn't right for them. And they didn't want to go and do hey hey it's that day. They didn't want to go and, you know... Um, pretend to be sort of pals with morning commercial radio DJs and things like that. They were much happier to just do their own thing. And the, the part that people would probably find extraordinary now is that they got a full 18 months into their career before they were ever seen being interviewed on Australian television. Um, you know, they, their first record came to start... So Tomorrow came in 1994, sort of, I think, August, September of 94. Um, and they weren't interviewed on Australian television until the first episode of Recovery aired in the April, May of 1996. You know, even the ARIA Awards at the end of 1995, you know, they quite deliberately didn't accept their awards and everything else because we knew that as soon as people saw them talking, well, firstly, they didn't want to do it. You know, they, they weren't interested in talking. Um, and secondly, we knew that if people saw them talking, their age would be undeniable, whereas if they just saw them playing, they could just focus on the fact that music would be great. John O'Donnell, who was running the label side of things but still operating from the same blueprint, remembers that this control that they are exerting extended not just to interviews but to the band's visual imprint as well, buying up early Silverchair images to remove them from the public domain. We went far and wide, and, and it wasn't that hard actually because they hadn't done too many photo shoots, but we formed relationships with, um, and, and some of the photographers we knew already from our history um, in the business, but yeah, we, um, David Anderson, a photographer who did some of the early photos of the band. Um, I bought photos from him, um, kind of selling him a story that, you know, we wanted to um, use these photos um, because there isn't enough time to do photo shoots and they're at school and stuff. And the reality is that we put a lot of those photos straight in the drawer and locked the drawer and said people can't see these photos ever again. Because um, some of them, you know, they were wearing Pearl Jam merch or they had um, jackets on where they'd written the name Pearl Jam on them and all of those things that would paint them as a little bit too close to their influences. 
Um, while all of that stuff was obvious, we didn't want that to be um, how they were perceived totally. So, um, yeah, we we put a lot of those photos in the drawer. Um, the drawer's never been unlocked. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then we set about, you know, doing photo shoots ourselves that we had control over and totally owned. Um, and so those kinds of steps we put in place the whole way through. Um, I mean, we had one of the funniest stories, and I'm sure you've heard this story, that 60 Minutes approached us two or three times in the life of Frogstom, and we just said no to them. And they were absolutely shocked and couldn't understand why we were withholding the band from them. Um, and to us it was really obvious no, none of their contemporaries were being featured on 60 Minutes, so why would they? And the whole reason was to shine a light on the fact that these, you know, teen grunge superstars were making it where others weren't and um, and that that would be the story that would be forever told and they wouldn't have a chance to grow up and continue to make music. It's not just you guys shepherding them and trying to protect the long game, though. They had a sort of built-in radar of what they wanted to do and what they oh, didn't do. Is that right? Totally. Absolutely. You know, we were just the bull bars at the front of the van, um, you know, just doing that stuff of kind of protecting them. But, no, all of the music that they made um, and their – that, you know, uh, that part of them um, was very strong was very defined, very – they were really determined to um, to deliver music that they would be remembered for and not just, you know, again, paint-by-numbers grunge songs. And we knew, um, and it's easy to say that in hindsight, but we did. We really believed that Daniel in particular was an incredible writer, but um, – you know, so so were all of the band, but we knew that they had something really special. That if it got a chance to evolve and and mature, it would be um, important. And I think we put them in a position where that stuff could happen. All of the all of the writing of the music and the production of the music was all them. So we were again, we were just facilitators for their vision. So we leave the first episode of the Frog Stomp podcast with the Tomorrow EP having gone gangbusters, featuring the version of Tomorrow recorded at Triple J following their win in the SBS Pick Me comp. The four-track release had spent six weeks at number one on the Aria Singles chart, and it was clear to everyone that Silverchair were on the precipice of something special, and as Ben recounts, even the three band members could tell. Do you look back on that time fondly? Is it a good time of your life? Yeah, man, I, I, I feel really blessed to have had the experience I had um, during those first years of the band. Like, we we had a lot of fun. And the thing you're most passionate about in life, and you're able to do it as a profession, and you're able to travel around and play to, you know, responsive audiences and, and, and also get paid for it, which is really nice. <laughs> um, like, that's... That's that's a dream, you know. That's that's everybody's dream. 
So to be able to, that's kind of part of my life experience. It's, you know, I'm really thankful. And, you know, the Foxtom era um, is definitely one of the best um, in the silver chest story, because, probably because it was so um, unrefined. It was just so kind of raw. It's that feeling of anything new or anything fresh, like it's got that excitement and, um, you know, it's un- uncharted territory. But, you know, as long as you go into it fearlessly, then I think you can really enjoy it. And, and thankfully we were, you know, we had the right people around us and supportive parents and um, and the passion for the music as well. So it was a good combination to be able to really enjoy it and be a, be a pretty... I mean, I've said it a few times, but it did feel really magical at the time. Like, um, you know, it, it, it felt like it felt like we were just living our dream. Like, you know, everything that Dan and I talked about when at his house, you know, we could be the biggest band in the world and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, it kind of felt like we, we had that chance. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Rewind with Steve Bell. In coming episodes, we'll continue to look at the genesis of Silverchair's Frog Stomp debut, from the recording sessions to the band taking over first Australia and then America and the world. If you've enjoyed listening, please rate and review the podcast through your favourite platform or podcast app. You've been listening to Rewind with Steve Bell, produced by Craig Trewick, recorded and engineered by Zig Parker of Green Room Sydney for the Handshake Agency.